Hi, from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of Roman innuendo all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary in hour number one by high school teacher Kyle Daniels from Salt Lake City, school board member Arlen Gould from Illinois, elementary school teacher Amanda Parsons from Chicago, and Dr. David Schuler, school superintendent of District 214 in Illinois. And in hour number two, we'll hear from libertarian Bruno Berend, a school choice advocate, state representative from Illinois, LaShawn Ford, who wants to end the teaching of American history in the classrooms, and Republican attorney Josh Cantrell. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at WCGO Radio in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us this evening, and we're going to begin very quickly because we're very fortunate. We've got great guests in, in both hours, but in hour number one, we have some real experts on one of the key issues facing uh, America right now, and that is going back to school. How do we go back to school safely? Different school districts are handling it in different ways. We're going to discuss some of the, how some of those decisions and how they're being made, and uh, we welcome uh, Kyle Daniels. He's the high school teacher from Salt Lake City. Uh, Arlen Gould is a school board member for many years, the Consolidated uh, Community District 221 in Illinois. Amanda uh, is a teacher of uh, English uh, in Chicago. And Dr. David Schuler, he is the school superintendent for District 214, and he was the school dis- superintendent of the year in 2018, not only in Illinois, but then in the United States. So we've got some great guests. I want to begin with you, Dr. Schuler. Um when you made your decision to go back to school, and you're going to go back with some online uh, lessons first and then maybe gravitate to in-room uh, classroom uh, studies, but where, how did you gather the information that you needed to make the decision you made? Yeah, great question. It's great to be here with you, Bruce. I think for us, we um, surveyed our parents, our teachers, our students, <clears throat> and asked for their insight, and we built a plan in June based on the best guidance we had at the time. But then we continued to look at monitoring both local, state, and federal public health guidance. And that ended up caused us just last week to shift our approach away from what we had been looking at, which was a high flex model where we were having about half the students in each day to a fully remote model to start um, the school year off. What did you What did you hear last week that, that, that was a red flag to you? Yeah, so three things, really. There were three studies that came out that talked about high school age students being a greater transmitter of COVID than we had previously thought. And our local county health department said that if anybody was positive or tested positive or suspected of being positive, we had to go back and contact trace for any student or individual with whom that person would have interacted for the previous 48 hours Mm -hmm. of 15 cumulative minutes. Previously, they had said 15 consecutive minutes. But if you have a five minute passing period and you move three times during the day, you hit your 15 cumulative minutes. So basically when we had our first case, we would have had to shut down. And I did not want to go through that crisis that we had in the spring where we flipped like that. And we just weren't ready. We, our kids and our parents and our families deserve a plan. That's a little longer than simply not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Sounds like a good decision. Arlen Gould, let me go to you. You're, uh, you've been a, on the school board for a long time. Uh, yours is an elementary district. Uh, how did you go about making the decision uh, of your board? Let me go back in time just a tad to fill in the blanks here. 
-hmm. So a year ago, winter, when we had that terrible cold weather uh, in Illinois, our superintendent, Dr. Mike Conley, uh, put together a plan, strangely enough, for remote learning and brought it to the board. The board at that time, a year ago, February or so, was not ready uh, to implement a remote learning program, but we, we learned about it, uh, our staff learned about it, and a program was put together. Then when the pandemic hit, obviously we were forced to go there, but we already had plans in place for our district, which was a, a fortunate thing. Now, telescoping to now, uh, we were prepared. We actually had two special board meetings and two regular board meetings in the time frame that we were evaluating what to do. And um, during that period, the the rate, the numbers, the positivity rate in Illinois was turning the wrong way. Uh, and of course, we have the responsibility for 6,500 kids, uh, not just my own children. And mm -hmm. so, as a result, as we looked at those numbers changing. And we heard what Illinois was saying, the Department of Public Health. We didn't get very much guidance out of Washington, frankly. Mm -hmm. It was an on the ground situation here. Uh, after making the decision and announcing it to bring our kids back soon, mm -hmm. uh, we felt that the prudent thing to do as did 214 was to delay bringing them back in person uh, at this point until October 5. Okay, thank you for that answer. Let me go to Kyle Daniels now, who joins us from Salt Lake City. You're a classroom teacher. Uh, tell us what happened last semester, because the question I want to ask you, is it too early to know how much your students didn't learn because of the changes forced on them? Okay, thank you for having me on. Uh Back in March 13th, the day it happened, I mean, still remember that happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had the uh, opportunity to sit there and talk to a lot of my students that were there. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it was supposed to be a two-week uh, time period that we weren't going to be in person. Right. Uh, and then that extended beyond that. And eventually, the school board and the, and the state of Utah uh, shut down schools. And to your question about the time, or is it, is it too soon to tell what's learned? You really, we have to look at what what do we determine as success? What do we determine as learning? What I can determine for myself and my and my students may be different than what uh, other people around the nation uh, will determine as, as being successful in that setting. Uh, immediately, I recognize that we're, we're changing mediums. We're going from being in person uh, to going online. And because of that, I had to switch up my own instruction, recognizing that the medium and my, my model of teaching mm -hmm. had to, to reflect that. Uh, I recognize as a social studies teacher that history, this is not, uh, this is a unprecedented time for what we're seeing with mm -hmm. this pandemic, but we, I was able to go back and look at what have we done over history? This right here, where we are right now, right. we are talking uh, in a distance learning model. Um, and, and so radio, TV, online, and we see this, this change in, in our modeling of right. teaching expand. But, but to your point of, of the timing of it, uh, we can look at the numbers and see what are our graduation rates. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to determine graduation rate, mm -hmm. yeah, graduation rate was there. Yeah. Uh, if we, but if we want to look at like scores, we want to look yeah. at ACTs, we want to look at uh, I wanna, I wanna, AP testing, that's going to be all over the place. I want to bring uh, Amanda into the conversation because she teaches the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, uh, and you teach uh, English and, and, and reading and writing. Uh, Amanda, uh, your students are much younger uh, how, in your view, did they adapt to 
a distance learning when it was forced on them? Some of them, some of them did okay. Uh, I also teach special education. That's a real challenge to be able to help my right. scholars right. during that time period when they need face-to-face -face assistance. A lot of the scholars were showing that they could succeed on an online platform, but it's not for everybody. We also had to rely on teaching and reteaching a lot of things that they've already learned throughout the school year. It made it a lot more difficult to teach new concepts or right. new skills, which we'll have to focus on this year um, and probably will have better resources to do that since we know what we're up against and, and what it will take to be able to do that. Amanda, I've got to pause right now for a little commercial break and we'll be back with all of our guests. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. Bruce Dumont continues on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. And I want to go back to uh, uh, Dr. Schuler, who, who joins us, who's a school superintendent and, and with our other guests. And Dr. Schuler, I want to talk about some of the other things that you have to take into, into consideration because we're obviously, you know, we're talking about and the concern for the, 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 the students in the classroom, the teachers in the classroom. But there's, there's the lunch ladies, there's the bus drivers, there's the, the janitorial staff of, of, of all your schools. How are they being prepared for uh, what, what lies ahead, especially if there's, if there's no school because everything is online? I mean, do they still have jobs? Are those people still getting paid? Yeah, so great question. It all depends on the school district. So some school mm -hmm. districts are paying people um, to do other interventionist work. Um, you know, in our district, we're taking some of our instructional assistants and having them reach out to kids that are not engaging online. So mm -hmm. we can make some personal touch points with them to make sure that we then share that information with our problem solving teams. Um, for us, we still have to food our, our feed our students on free and reduced lunch and we want to do that. And so, you know, some of our food service workers, we do have work for. Um, at the same time, if our buses aren't running during the day, we don't necessarily need all those bus routes. Mm -hmm. But in our district, we are um, offering co-curricular activities after school. And so we will be using buses after school to bring kids in, make them feel connected in the outdoor setting when weather permits mm -hmm. um, to make sure that they do feel that connection to the school. Mm -hmm. uh, Arlen, back to you. Do you think that, that people understand the complexity of the decisions that you and school administrators and teachers and, and, and have to be dealing with right now. There's, there's just, there's a million questions about whether or not you're going to be successful or not. Right. Uh, the hardest part of it, I think, and thank you for having me on the show today is explaining to people that while we listen to them, we may not agree with them and we have mm -hmm. to make a decision, uh, for all the children of our district. And it's a very tough decision. So it's a combination of our teachers and our parents. We did surveys as Dave did as well to listen to our families. And it was a mixed bag in terms of what they wanted. Do they all understand? I must have answered 50 emails myself as a school board member and gotten many, many phone calls. And our superintendent had many more than I did. Uh, and many of the questions are, that, this was not what I expected it to be in the, in the spring, uh, and others were delighted with what we did in the spring. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're doing the best we can. I kind of equate it to Bruce to flying through a thunderstorm without radar. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the last segment that how some of your uh, teachers were planning early in the year, the long before this even hit, 
uh, because of a snowstorm to plan for a distance learning concept. As you look, because you've been involved in government for for a lot of your life, you were a, a you are a special education uh, educator uh, going back many, many years. You worked for Governor Ogilvie uh, at a statewide level here in Illinois. But, I mean, when, when, when you look at, 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 at what a teacher has to do now, um, how can they ever catch up? How will we, I guess I asked this question to, uh, uh, to one of our teachers, how are we ever going to know what we don't know and what's been lost because of the difference in teaching at different levels over the last uh, six months? Yeah, some of it we may never know. I mean, uh, one of the anguishing parts of the decision was weighing the social emotional part of this decision mm-hmm. with the medical side, right? So we know for sure that kids, especially at the younger grades, who are not socializing, who are not with their friends, who are not at school having discussions and learning how to deal with other people, we know that there's a negative side to that. And so that was part of the equation too. We didn't know how bad the COVID could be with kids. We now know it can be more severe than a lot of people believe and that it certainly can affect children. Unlike what has been said in Washington, they're not immune Amanda, Amanda, question to you, because one of the things that the president has said, and he's quoted the, uh, uh, the National Association of, of Pediatrics, that I may have the, the Academy of Pediatrics, talking about that uh, one thing we, we don't know is we don't know how many students may be being abused at home. So, so tell me about the information that you can glean being a classroom teacher from your students when they come to your class every day as to what their home life might be like and, and whether they're going six months without having uh, you and I, with an opportunity to look at them. Uh, do, do you fear, as the president suggests, that there may be some horrible things going on in their homes? Without a doubt, there are some awful things going on. These are the questions or the uh, situations that we don't have answers to. And these are always, that's always one of the top primary concerns in a situation like this. When we see them on a daily basis, it's hard enough to determine if something adverse is going on at home and how we can help them face to face when things are going on outside of our um, perspective, like the COVID situation in today's society. We don't know what's going on. Uh, some of the kids, you know, we don't, and if they're not logging online or we can't get in touch with their parents, we don't, we don't even know how they're doing. So this definitely puts a more difficult perspective in place of, of how do we help them and what can we do for them in this situation. Kyle, can you stay in touch with your uh, students? Uh, what sort of attendance uh, records are there where you work? Uh, good question. And in my particular setting, we have a very difficult uh, on a normal basis with attendance. Uh, being in a Title I school, and uh, having the issues that face that community. Uh, with the distance learning in the springtime, that was actually something that I was proud to see our school and our community rally around was that I had far more interaction with parents during this time than I had ever before. Uh, I'm reaching out to students and, and teachers, or and parents rather, uh, that I, I hadn't contacted or hadn't been in contact with in years prior. And so there, there is some positive to that nature, but at the same time, as to what Amanda's saying, I'm, I'm not seeing as many either. And so there is some give and take there. And I really like what Arlen, or what Arlen was saying about with all the issues that are facing all the different parties involved, we can't, we can't placate to all of them. 
but we can do our best to to take on the challenges that we're facing. Now there there is a good product. I, I want to hear this from our teachers and I'm but I'm gonna let Dave respond first. I mean one of the things that that, that that's a kind of a quick reaction and again this is a reaction I think we've had in Chicago because initially uh, the mayor in Chicago wanted to have a, a hybrid wanted to have you know two days of, of classroom teaching and three days of, of online teaching or, or vice versa. And the union said, no, we're not going back to school. And they threatened to strike. And what that triggers, Dave, is the belief that some parents have that a big problem here is teachers and teachers unions. They just don't want to do the extra work that's required. Your response to that. Is there some of that that you're dealing with? We are not. We have not had that experience at all. Our uh, association leadership, we've kept in the loop every step of the way. I talk to the president multiple times a day. And I think most superintendents across the country, outside of some really large urban settings, mm-hmm. it's very similar to that. And I think, you know, a lot depends on how old your buildings are. You know, if you have buildings that are very small and 600 square feet classrooms, that's there's a much greater concern there than a 1200 foot classroom. And that's some of the things that parents, you know, may not have the, that nuance language to, but if you have buildings like CPS that are over a hundred years old, I think you have to ask the question, can you safely get kids in class? Mm-hmm. What about it? What about in your school districts? Uh, is every gymnasium uh, uh, in, in district 214 being used for, for uh, classroom and not, uh, not physical education, Dave? Well, yes. And that was one of the other big problems with the public health guidance that came out from the state last week. It used to be that you could have 50 kids or individuals in a section of a space. So we were going to bring down the divider curtains in our field house and create like four different spaces. Illinois Department of Public Health came out and said in field houses, you may only have a maximum of 50 kids altogether. Well, that just took a capacity of 200 and lowered it down to 50. So I don't have enough places right now where our kids could have lunch. <laughs> Physically, I don't have the space for it. Uh-huh. Is, is this a situation, uh, uh, Arlen, that, that the, the government uh, has not, and I mean all levels of government, not, not the feds, not just locally, that really uh, there isn't one answer and everyone is just sort of winging it right now? Well, I think it is true. Everybody is winging it. I, I just wanted to add one thing that we work very closely with our DEA, with our teachers. There was no uh, concern on our part that our teachers wouldn't come back. Okay. Uh, there were some concerns there, but they wanted to teach our kids. Uh, but I do think that uh, at least in Illinois, we understood, I think, that it was going to be a local decision, that local school boards, elected school boards were going to make the decisions best they could. Mm-hmm. And in conjunction with staff and with the rulings from the state of Illinois, I think in Washington, unfortunately, there's a myopic view and uh, the the uh, guidance from there has been more dictatorial. You will do this when at the local level we have different concerns, I think, than they do in Washington. Well, but most of your people would like to have the schools open, right? It starts well, with I mean, I would, the president no, says, I would say among parents, it's very okay. much split. A split. Okay. Uh, pretty much down the middle in terms of the survey. And I've gotten letters from both sides of the equation as a school board member, but I think that they understand that we had to make a decision that was not, somebody was going to be unhappy. There was a teacher, uh, uh, a a school nurse that was on one of the Sunday shows today from Alabama. And, and she said, uh, she said that one of the big mistakes made early on 
is that this was viewed as an education issue, and she thought that it should be, going back to school, it should have been a public health issue. Dealing with schools should have been a public health issue first. Pour all the public health thinking into the local school as the venue that would be uh, where public health would be administered, and then bring in, fold in education. I want to get everybody's reaction to that suggestion from Alabama that came in this morning. Uh, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. And now around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back in beautiful Evanston, Illinois. Ken Brandenburg is listening tonight. Randall Bennett, a big fan. John Pinter from Notre Dame University and Carolyn Grunwald joins us. And uh, also we've got some people listening in the great state of Ohio and uh, Grove City, Ohio. Also is joining us this evening. And uh, we're going to take a moment now before we go to calls, and we do have some calls. I want each of our guests to give us a little background above and beyond what I've already shared with you. And let's begin with... uh, Let's begin with Arlen Gould. Arlen, tell us a little bit about your involvement with schools. Well, I took a circuitous route to the school board. Started off as a special ed teacher in Chicago, um, working with the inner city kids uh, with no experience, because in those days, the city needed teachers desperately. And then I was hired by a fellow named Dick Ogilvie, who was one of our great governors, did not go to jail. And uh, he asked me to work on special ed statewide. So I became an ombudsman for the parents of the special needs children across the state, wrote legislation, passed legislation. And, uh, had and how long on the school board? Put, how long on the school board now? And then I have been on the school board now 20, this is my 28th year. Okay. Dave Schaefer, we thank, uh, uh, Schuler rather, we thank you very much for joining us. As I mentioned, uh, in 2018, you were the Illinois Superintendent of the Year, and then you were the National Superintendent of the Year, and you also have in the past, you've been the President of the Association of School Superintendents. So your background is very, very deep, but tell us a little bit more about uh, what you do and and, uh, how delighted you are uh, to be an educator. Uh, you know, I, there's no better seat to be in than the seat of a school superintendent right now. It is exhausting work, but um, I cannot imagine being anywhere else. I love having the opportunity because the impact is just so monumental. It's my 21st year as a superintendent. I've been in three different districts. Uh, currently, I'm in the awesome district of District 214 in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. 
We have seven high schools, six comprehensive high schools, and uh, 12,000 students. Kyle Daniels also joins us. Uh, he is a high school teacher in Salt Lake City. He's also a Facebook friend. And so when I put out an appeal earlier in the week to uh, if there was anybody out there who was a classroom teacher that wanted to participate, that's how we got together. So, uh, Kyle, tell us a little bit more about other things you're involved in uh, at the school level. I've been teaching in the school my entire career. Absolutely love it. Uh, got my master's in teaching. Didn't start off my career or thinking that my career would be in teaching. I've always wanted to. And that's and then it ended up there. I won't go into the whole story of how I got there, mm -hmm. but I am so glad that it happened. Uh, the years that I've spent out there in that school has been amazing. And what I learned and gained from those students day in and day out is amazing. Uh, I also teach and coach the uh, speech and debate team. So that's mm -hmm. also been a, an interesting uh, journey through social distancing and distance learning, uh, witnessing the national speech and debate uh, tournament mm -hmm. happening all online, uh, effective and very smooth as teachers and good from across the nation came together and made that work. Very good. Amanda Parsons, tell us a little bit about your, uh, you're an elementary school teacher. Tell us a little bit about your school. Uh, my school is actually part of the nationally renowned charter school network. Mm -hmm. We have a partnership with Chicago public schools. We share a lot of the same spaces with Chicago public schools. Um, we are recognized for our tests nationally. Uh, I teach at the only middle school in our network. I teach sixth, seventh, and eighth grade language arts special education. Um, mm -hmm. I've been with the network for now. This, is, this will be my third year this year. Um, and this was my full teaching job, my first real full teaching job mm -hmm. here in Illinois. I've only been in Illinois for four years. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I have heard for over 40 years now how teachers around the United States sometimes dip into their own pocket to buy pencils and pens and paper for their students. And, and I'm flabbergasted that in a country with this wealth, those things happen. Do they happen at your level, Dave? Again, you represent primarily a, a suburban district, but does it happen in, in District 214 where people are, are dipping into their own pockets, the teachers? Absolutely. It happens everywhere, and it's because our teachers are just so dedicated and committed to the work, and we try to provide a good amount of resources, but every teacher has their own art of teaching, and so there's always a need for something that they want to provide their students, um, and so it definitely happens in our district. Mm -hmm. One last follow-up to you, uh, and this gets back into the role of government because you've been involved with it, as you just said, for a long, long time. When you look at the con uh, uh, collective involvement of the federal government with several uh, administrations of, of both parties, it seems to me that on the subject of distance learning that everyone has dropped the ball. George Bush didn't want to leave anybody behind uh, Al Gore allegedly <laughs> created the internet. I mean, uh, everyone seems to talk a good game when it comes to distance learning. But then when we get to a point in our history, like we, you know, we got to in March 16th of this year, uh, half of the school districts in the country and most of the teachers, they didn't know what to do because the infrastructure was not there. Is, the, does, is everybody a little bit guilty on this, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. But no one predicts a global pandemic either, you know? And so, but yeah, absolutely. I would argue what we did in the spring though, was not distance learning. It was crisis learning, crisis okay. teaching, crisis management. But again, after, after, after 16 years of talking about being ready for this, yep. we weren't ready for it. 
I, I would tell you if we have the one shot this fall to get it right with remote learning and distance right. learning, and we spent the last couple months preparing for it, if we don't get this right, shame on us. But I do have confidence that we are going to do a much, much better job this fall than we did in the spring. Arlen Gould, same question to you, because you've been around politics for a long, long time. You're a kind of a bipartisan guy. Uh, hasn't everybody blown it? Yeah, I think that the, the biggest blow off was the fact that we should have anticipated, maybe not this particular pandemic, but based on history, a pandemic. And we didn't. Uh, the government knew something could come. And so at the starting at the federal level, we did blow it. Um, and I think that you don't realize all the infrastructure that 214 has had to do and that we've had to do to be ready even for this day to turn the switches on. Uh, we had to do uh, improve our Wi-Fi in all of our buildings. We've been doing that for several years, not in anticipation of this, just because we thought we needed it. Uh, the same thing with equipping our kids with uh, computers. We had done that already. But you, you have all these infrastructure things in order to be ready and then training the teachers so that they can do, do the best possible now, job. I should mention when we're not going to get into it, but you're, you're not a big fan of our current president. But would you acknowledge that given the fact that so many of these answers are, are not yet answered, so many of these questions are not yet answered, is there the ability, uh, you may not agree that the president has the ability to do it, but does he have the opportunity to make a huge comeback in the minds of many people if he can help lead uh, the back-to-school effort in the United States and either get the government involved in certain areas and, and keep their nose out in other areas? Does he have the possibility to do that? You know, he's, he's got not a great deal of time in order to do that. I think that uh, the minds of a lot of people are baked uh, where they are today. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as the schools go, I don't know how he turns around the mishandling of education. When you say to mm -hmm. schools, I'm going to take your money away, if you don't do what we say, that's just ludicrous because every school district is dealing with a different situation. So he, he's got a very rough road, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, and obviously, I've, I've been working with people on both sides of the aisle for my whole political career. Mm -hmm. um, but he's put himself in a very bad position. Okay, let's go to Kevin, who's listening to us in Chicago. Go ahead. You're on Beyond the Beltway. Hello. Line two, caller, are you there? Andy, have we got a caller on the line? He's gone? Okay, sorry, we don't have the caller on the line. Uh, a question that's come in uh, via the internet here, and this uh, is for you, Dave. Uh, and again, uh, school superintendents and, and, and school bureaucracy have also traditionally been a whipping boy for many people who uh, criticize education. So uh, uh, why do we need so many districts? Why do we need so many principals? Why do we need so many administrators? And this person adds uh, at, at, at high levels of, uh, of compensation. Yeah, so the legislature back in the early 1900s decided on the structure in Illinois for how our school districts were going to be organized. And so, you know, I think there are examples like in Georgia, which has county school systems um, that can be effective uh, depending on just how, how it's organized and how it's set up. I think for me, the one thing I would push back really hard on is we need principals in each school 
to be an educational leader and instructional leader in a school and having somebody that's the North star in that building, I think is just really, really critical. Are they really in control of that school or is there a superintendent like yourself that tells them what to do? All depends on the district. I have some colleagues that are very collaborative with their principals and I have some colleagues that are very directive with their principals. So I really mm-hmm. think depends on, and that really is at the behest of the school board, how the mm-hmm. school board selects the superintendent based on the culture of that school district. Historically, uh, what does anybody who, and I'll throw this up to anybody who want to, wants to respond to it, maybe Dave, you take a crack at it first. Uh, what were we doing with American education during the Spanish flu of 19? 19- 17 and 18. Dave, what did we do? Were the schools open or closed? Um, you know what? I, I'm going to defer to Kyle on that as our history teacher and see if he has a, if he knows better. I have some suspicions, but I, I have not researched that. Kyle, personally. do you know anything about that? Well, the, the, yeah, the, the brief research I did was I just read uh, just today earlier about it was more centered around everything that we can see is more centered around what was going on with the military at the time. Right. Uh, as we saw that most of the spread of it happened in military bases. Uh, people did pull their students out. It does talk about that. Mm-hmm. We also see that in the 1920s, they started things. In fact, the university of Chicago uh, started a thing. Oh, I forgot what they call that. Uh, the school of the air. And they held school on, on the radio. On the radio. Uh, and then the Great Depression hit. I mean, we see a lot right. more happening in the Great Depression, actually, with distance learning than we did during Spanish. Yeah, school. I want to talk more about that. Actually, that there wasn't too much because of radio wasn't uh, developed really until right. 1920, so they missed it by a couple of years. When we come back, I've got a couple more facts on that, and hopefully we'll get back to calls. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks for joining us tonight. Here's a couple of basic uh, facts about uh, the, uh, the the Spanish flu uh, pandemic of 1918. I was looking up the other day uh, because uh, it was also an election year. It was a midterm election year. Um, and, and this is a startling fact. But in October of 1918, one month before Election Day, 195,000 Americans died. That's more than has died in this country since we started to to count the numbers earlier this year. 195,000 Americans died in October of 1918. And on November 5th, there was a midterm election, which the Republicans won. They swept both the House and the Senate. The President Woodrow Wilson was very unpopular because World War I was going on. 
Eight days later, by the way, World War I ended. But again, Wilson was not popular. And only 40%, or I guess would say 40%, 40% of the American turned out to vote. So we'll, we'll talk about that in hour number two. We're going to be talking about mail-in voting and stuff like that. But those are some pretty startling statistics. So uh, if, you want to, if you want to learn some, some significant things about history, uh, you might want to go back just to uh, 1918 and, and look what was happening in America uh, as we moved through an election year and this pandemic. I mean, candidates weren't even allowed to campaign. And, and there was mandated uh, social distancing. And there were mandated masks in many cities. So a lot of the things we're talking about now, uh, there is there is evidence that, you know, it either worked or didn't work very well, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Let's go to Kevin. I think he's back on the line calling from Chicago. Hopefully you're there this time. Go ahead. I'm here. I'm here. Thanks, guys. Uh, great Are show you there? so far. Uh, first, an observation and then a Andy, question. Andy, he's not there. How about so, Tom in Ohio? Are you there? Okay, go ahead. You're on the air. I don't know what's what's happening, but go ahead. This is Kevin in Chicago. I can barely hear you. What, what Andy, can we clear this line up at all? This is a, a line that we cannot even hear. Keep, say a few more words. Can you hear me now? Yes, but go ahead with your question. You know, we're going to have to stop you. Uh, we're going to, the, the, the quality, uh, Andy, the quality of the call is too bad to put on the radio. So let's, we're not going to take any calls this evening, and we're going to figure out by next Sunday night, we're going to figure out what the hell is going on with our phone system here because it is unacceptable, as Lori Lightfoot would say. Uh, let's go back to, uh, to our guests and, and find out from them, uh, as you look forward, uh, to, to the future, how are you going to decide? Uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, uh, uh, Dave, how are you going to decide when you will switch from the online, uh, protocol to maybe bringing people back uh, to the classroom and will it happen all at once? It definitely will not happen all at once. We want to make sure that we do it and we can do it right and that we do it safely. And so we'll, we will look to bring in our most vulnerable students first and then gradually build from there. And um, you know, we're gonna let public health guidance guide our work. As Arlen said, in the state that I live in, um, you know, in Illinois, the governor has really allowed complete local control. We know like out in California or New York, the governor has put thresholds and metrics in place that would allow for in-person instruction or remote. So those states are a little different. And then you have, you know, uh, Georgia and Florida who are compelling all of their schools to reopen. And so it just really depends on what part of the state you're in. For us, we're going to look at positivity rates in our region, uh, in our area, hospitalizations, um, that type of data. Um, And, you know, to provide support to our teachers and their families and parents, we're going to look to run what we're calling an e-learning lab um, Mm -hmm. out of our district office, where families that need childcare can, for a very, very reduced minimal rate, have their students in pods of 10 um, together uh, for for that remote learning. Is there going to be a a greater focus on maybe bringing the, the forces of public health maybe into uh, the schools around the state? And and is this a good idea around the nation to to use the physical buildings uh, as a way to deliver, uh, whether it's tests or, uh, well, tests would be the principal thing they could possibly do there. Dave? Yes. So we have been a testing site for uh, all summer long and using one of our parking lots, the National Guard, um, 
and set it up and it worked really, really well. And we had a great partnership and how awesome is it that, you know, we could provide a public mm -hmm. good for our community right in one of our own schools. Mm -hmm. So I think it absolutely is something that we should partner with and continue the conversations and bring health officials into the conversations for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, we just heard, by the way, from a David Rodriguez. He listens to this program in San Jose, California, and he, he tells the story that his uh, father and his first wife, they lost a daughter in December of 1919 and another daughter in January of 1919 in Mexico, uh, victims of this uh, uh, the, the pandemic of, of 1918. Thanks very much for your call. We have just a few minutes left. I want to go back uh, uh, to our teachers, to uh, Kyle. We'll start with you. Uh, We've, we've, we've been through almost an hour of the program this evening. What advice or encouragement would you like to send to those listening and watching the show this evening about uh, how they can best prepare themselves for going back to school this fall? Okay, well, yeah, first, um, to answer that question about the flu, too, I was going to also add that 43 cities did close. They closed for 12 weeks, just closed. Okay, good. It's good uh, to know. Aside from that, so advice... And uh, going forward, first and foremost, do your best if you are in a uh, distance learning mod model, do your best to keep in contact with your teachers, uh, also with your schools. Try to, to find ways that you can um, work with your peers through distance learning if you are in that kind of model. Have confidence and believe that we, we're here for you. This is what we, we want you to succeed. And I feel like that uh, that would go a long way, just having that confidence with between the teacher and the student, also parents. Um, that's one thing that I found okay. in those who were successful in I this situation give, uh, was parents' involvement. Amanda, we're down to just 15 seconds. Your final advice for everybody. To know that the teachers do want to see the scholars face-to-face, -face, that they do want to be in front of your children, that they do love your children and they want them to succeed. It's not an issue of sitting at home and making pay and not doing the work. If we could be there face-to-face -face with them, we want to because we love them. Amanda Parsons, Kyle Daniels, Arlen Gould, and Dr. David Schuler have joined us in our number one, folks. Thank you very much for this uh, great discussion of education and the challenges facing the country as we move forward. I'm Bruce Dumont. Another full hour coming up with more guests. Don't go away. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field...
Today'sMilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at Today'sMilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back for hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. Let me introduce our guests uh, for this hour. They are Bruno Barron. He is a libertarian. Uh, he believes in school choice. And also we have LaShawn Ford. He is an Illinois state representative. And we also have uh, Josh Cantro, who's an attorney and a Republican. I'm looking at the uh, screen right now, and they all look like they're all jumbled up. So uh, there they are. They popped up, and they all look just like they're supposed to. Uh, let me begin with uh, with you, uh, LaShawn Ford, because... Uh, uh, in addition to being a state representative in Illinois, I do want to ask a quick question because you made news in Illinois this past week or in Chicago, uh, where, where you represent the, the West side of the city and part of suburbia, you said that you think the teaching of American history should be taken out of the Illinois school system. Why? Well, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate the effort. Good that you put forth to uh, make this happen. And um, it's always good. I, I said that we wanted to make sure that we suspend the current teachings that we have in the schools right now, not in, in, in history teaching forever, not erase the history, but get the history right. And that's all I said. And that's what we plan to do in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to get reaction from our other guests. First of all, I want to get, uh, uh, we have a Republican guest, Josh Cantrow. Josh, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are critical of uh, schools and, and what's taught in schools. Is this just uh, uh, is this just an expansion of that concern, or do you think it's uh, more sinister than that? Well, I, I don't think it's sinister. I think that we all always should be looking at uh, curriculum. Uh, whether it's history or anything else, and making sure that things are up to date and the kids are learning um, what is relevant. And uh, look, I, I have no issue with, uh, given the events uh, of this summer, um, 
uh, with looking at the history curriculum. But I, I think that you don't suspend it while while you do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, you keep t- teaching it. And let's go to Bruno Barron. And again, Bruno, for those who are longtime listeners and viewers of this program, they know that you are a very much of a critic of the of the public education system. So, uh, do you think that the representative's idea is the is it the germ of a good idea or the germ of a horrible idea? Uh, it's it's a little of both, uh, in my view. I think um, it clearly, you know, you could make a joke out of this and say, well. All the testing industry indicates that they haven't been doing a very good job of teaching history at all anyway. Uh, but you could say that about math. You could say that about, uh, uh, um, you know, everything under the sun that they've been teaching, which is what has made me such a critic of public schools. We, we live in a, you know, I, I would make the case that the zip code-based system where rich people can move to Wilmette and everybody else gets to stay out is essentially educational apartheid in the first place. So I am no fan of the school system. I'm no fan of how it's taught. On the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that uh, special interest groups, whether they be Black Lives Matter or the 1619 Project uh, or many, many of these organizations that are not really about teaching new history, they're about changing the narrative about history. Um, I'm not a big fan of that either. My, my attitude is, uh, there's historic, there's historical facts, there's interpretation of historical facts, and let's have all those facts on the table and let's debate the interpretation of them as best as we can. LaShawn, do you agree with that? 100%, 100%, and they have my word that I don't want a slanted type of interpretation. I want the facts, and that's the way it's got to be. I mean, we know the way the history is now that when it was written and it's been passed on for generations, there was only white man at the table that wrote it. And of course, it's going to be biased towards that group of people. And I, I'm with you, Josh. I'm with you, Bruno. I'm, I am. You have my word. That's the only way I want it. The good, the bad and the ugly to be on the table for discussion, for teaching. Do you also agree with Bruno that uh, the, the the public education that one gets in the Chicago public schools uh, is not that great for many black families, and it might be better for them if they had the ability to go to a different school if they chose to do so, like wealthy white people do? You know, I'm a Catholic, um, and I went to Catholic schools my entire life. Um, from grammar school, high school, college, to the seminary, to study to be a priest, and um, ultimately to be a teacher. I think that in this country, there's nothing wrong with parents knowing what's best for their children and being able to send their kids to the school that meets their needs. That's important. And as a Democrat, I catch flag because I believe that And I I just know that one in four children in the Chicago public schools attend failing schools. And that's a problem. And the only thing that separates young people from getting a a high quality education sometimes is the ability to afford to have it. Do you believe that you get the flack from your Democratic friends uh, and many of your Democratic voters as well? Because... uh, uh, they are more concerned about preserving teachers' jobs than educating the public? 
You know, the unions are strong. And I think that we have to do everything that we can as a party to build up parents so that parents have a say in their children's education. I do believe that um, regardless to what um, competition is good. And I was a founding member of a Catholic school on the west side of Chicago called uh, Christ the King. Mm -hmm. And I support that school and it's right in the heart of the west side of Austin. And it Mm -hmm. provides opportunities that ordinarily wouldn't be there for those black families. So, but yet again, I also support public education because that's something that parents want. Some people don't want their kids in private schools. So there's nothing wrong with us in America having two systems that work in the best interest of people. Bruno, uh, one thing we should mention for those around the country, if you listen to the first hour of our show this evening, we talked about this uh, uh, the, this dilemma that many educators and parents have in uh, what, what, what are they going to do to, to educate their children in the, in the next uh, six months. Uh, and some are choosing classrooms and some are choosing online. Uh, we have a unique situation in Chicago where the unions have said, no, we're not going to teach in classrooms. And so they have demanded that there be online teaching. And yet the Catholic archdiocese system, uh, they have said, we're going to have classrooms. Uh, are, are we not going to see an example maybe in Chicago of, uh, which side, uh, or which case might be, uh, uh, better to make to a national audience? Um, I think I think what we're going to see with COVID, and uh, you know, I don't want to be overly controversial or sound too um, too much like a hyper, hyperbolic radio host. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I think is so fascinating about COVID is that it's going to force a lot of these issues independent of whatever our ideological view is. You're going to start seeing people agitating for more access to classrooms. You're going to also start seeing them agitating for higher quality online education i've been talking about we've got it we've got we've got it we've got a pause uh it, it, it good it's it's a good controversial statement that's what i expect from you we'll follow up <laughs> on it when we come back i'm bruce dumont there are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases wash your hands avoid close contact with people who are sick avoid touching your eyes nose and mouth Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, let's go back to Bruno. Bruno, you were about to make a point before the commercial break, so uh, set it up again. Well, basically, I was just saying that 
because of what's going on with parents right now, and, and they don't know whether they're going to get their kid in a classroom or they're, whether they want, they want to open up a small micro school or whether they have to do something different. I think what you're going to see in the next year maybe is a lot of people trying a lot of different things. And I think what's, it's not going to be people and parents so much as it's going to be COVID that's going to force people to start re-examining how we do schooling. And, you know, again, I, what I'd like to see happen is a good 20 to 25% of the people start questioning the system enough to actually leave it and try new things. And I think that'll be mostly a good thing. Uh, Bruce, if I could just add, I, I think that, uh, I think that Bruno's is right on point with that. I think that COVID is forcing innovation across numerous industries and we're going to see it with school as well. And I sure hope we do because, uh, look, I have three kids who went through the Chicago public school system, uh, two who are two high schoolers still there, and it needs some innovation. Do you agree with that, LaShawn? I do. I mean, it's time for change in these uh, systems that, I mean, the question is, do we still need people to go to high school for four years? You know, yep. do we still need young people to go to school from 7.30 in the morning until 3.30 in the evening, in the afternoon. You know, those have to be questioned. And do we you've still also, need you also have- need You also need, I mean, your parents, as you've just described in the first segment, your parents, uh, they, they paid extra money. They dug deep to send you to a Catholic school. Yes. So they cared. Yeah. They were in the yeah, house. They and, and they struggled. How, and- how, mu- how much of the discussion here that... Nobody really wants to talk about LaShawn is that you can have teachers in the classroom, but if you don't have parents at home that are giving them a nurturing uh, lifestyle, uh, the chances of success are not that great. You know, we have a system that that stacked that stacked against um Parents, and we don't make excuses, but the family court system is is very um, bad in this country, and especially in Illinois, where it divides and tears up tears apart families. And we also have a economy and a system that causes people to have to work two, three jobs, to, um, and it drags people away from their families. There's just so many things in society right now that's uh, that destroys a healthy family. COVID is making us evaluate families more now, too, and families have spent more time with one another these days. Bruce, if I could just respond. Go I, ahead. I, I agree with a lot of what LaShawn just said about uh, families and the importance of family, but a key equation with school outcome are the teachers. The, te- the Chicago public school teachers in 2009, I'm sorry, 2019, when they staged the 12-day walkout, said over and over again, we are essential workers. But when it was time to bring them back to school and Chicago was ready to go to a 2-3 hybrid model, two days online, Mm -hmm. three days in school, or vice versa, Mm -hmm. uh, the Chicago Public, the Chicago Teachers Union said, no way, we're not doing that. Don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. And the very next day, our mayor, Lori Lightfoot, Mm -hmm. came. You would think that having the most generous compensation package in America and all the benefits that accrue to that would have brought some goodwill, Mm -hmm. but it brought none. And it's just a shame that 
the teachers union, and I'm not talking about individual teachers because I love my kids' teachers. I'm talking about the union seems to be so against innovation. Well, again, I think we we discussed this in the last segment because uh, I think it is an impression that exists in many parts of the country. It's usually about urban school systems, uh, but it doesn't exist everywhere. But again, there is there is a hostility that exists. Uh, a caller uh, or a, 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 a Facebook post has come in, uh, Lashana, and they want to ask uh, in, in response to your answer as to what's needed that uh, to, for you to address uh, fatherless children and the fact that that many black families aren't together that that uh, uh, having children out of wedlock is is uh, is 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 part of the uh, the mo in the black community is is that a yeah, part I'm, of the problem or not i'm happy to be a part of this discussion when people want to say that it's um black um families and black kids that don't have their fathers at mm-hmm. home i mean the truth is there are white children without fathers at home and born out of wedlock. Yes. But but the problem that we have in this society is there's a such thing as communities that's treated different than others and communities that have higher quality of life and than others and communities that have um, resources that others don't. The community that I live in, I live in Austin and mm-hmm. we have a lot of working families that pay taxes to help keep this whole city together yet the resources are different. And so when you have that type of environment, you're going to have stress and trauma. There's no reason for people in Austin where people go to work every day have to deal with drugs and illegal drugs and illegal guns that's able to find its way in that community. How does it happen when just across the border, Oak Park, you don't see it? There's well, something uh, a question that many people would be asking is over the, and the president has certainly asked this question over the last 50 years, those that have represented the West side of Chicago, whether it's in the city council or in Springfield or in Washington, they have failed to demonstrate the necessary clout. They certainly have delivered enough votes to the democratic machine to stay in office but they haven't delivered the goods to make significant changes in the lifestyle which they have to live in. Would you acknowledge that, that this part of it is that, uh, that either nobody cares uh, or uh, politicians uh, don't care? Yeah. You know, when you look at government, it's a system of numbers. And as much as black legislators, aldermen and uh, Congress people want to um, deliver you still have to add the numbers up and get people to vote for the things that's important to your district. That's a difficult task. There's no doubt that every black elected official that goes to Washington, goes to Springfield, goes to city council or to the county, they're advocating for their constituents. But the truth is the majority party rules, not just the Democrat, but the white party rules. And it's like, when you think but, about, but again, how- there are districts. There are districts like the West Side of Chicago, uh, and I mean a collective. We're talking about several congressional districts 
that they are replicated in large urban areas all over the United States. So it isn't just those that are from Illinois or Chicago. I mean, they they have counterparts in Detroit and Cleveland and Los Angeles and New York and and Miami. I mean, they so, so collectively they can add uh, add up a, a significant number. And 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 when you have the power of uh, the Congress, you should be able to do more. I mean, you've got the Speaker of the House now. I mean. Uh, it, not enough seems to be going on. I'm going to agree that the Democratic Party should do more to make sure that the urban cities get the um, support that it needs. That's no doubt. So I'm not defending the Democratic Party one bit because I'm ashamed of the Democratic Party for not doing more to support the black communities. Okay. Bruno, uh, so go ahead. I'd love to jump in here quickly. Yes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say to LaShawn, it's like, look, I don't know, you know, clearly if you look at the Zoom screen and you're watching this online, you can see that it's like three white guys talking to a black guy. I grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois in the 60s and 70s. So I had a way, way different upbringing than you probably did. You sound like you had backing from parents who cared. So no one is no one is trying to make the case that um, that money doesn't matter really, but, but I think what you're your proof of this, and I, I think what the, the case can be made, that if you have a situation with all sorts of social entropy, and that's not just in the black community, call it the disadvantaged community of every race, you know, Appalachia, um, some rural areas, uh, places that are hit hard by the opioid epidemic, that you destroy the social cohesion in a community, and all the money in the world isn't going to help them. And, and I can't remember, I think it's called the Abbott cases, but they did this in New Jersey. And this was all through the, the late eighties and nineties where they sued the school districts and a bunch of judges in New Jersey came down and they essentially stripped all kinds of money from all kinds of district. And they poured that money into the poor black communities to almost no effect for those schools. So I would make the case, and, I'm, and you know, maybe somebody from Antifa or Black Lives Matter might call me a racist for saying this, but I don't, I don't think it's an unfair statement. I'm on the side of every single American getting a better, fairer shake, and I'm happy to admit that I had advantages growing up in Lake Forest that people in your community don't have now and didn't have in the 60s, certainly. But the case we want to make is that it's not just about money that people have to come in and say, we need to rebuild the social fabric of these communities so that there's something there for people to build off of when the good teachers come in, when the school choice happens and they can go to different schools and better schools and better school options. And I think everybody in this country needs to get behind rebuilding that social fabric because it, that's more important than all the money in the world. We have to break, LaShawn. I want you to follow up on that uh, when we come back, cause, but I, I don't want to give you just 20 seconds to do it. Uh, 1-800-723-8029 is the phone number. We may try one more call to see if the quality of the line is sufficient enough for this broadcast, and we'll do that when we come back. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. And hopefully every Sunday night, whether it's live on the radio, whether it's live on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, whether it's on beyondthebeltway.com, wherever it is, good to have you with us. Every year, millions of Americans use opioids to manage pain. 
Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. And uh, phone number 1-800-723-8289. We're going to try a call in just a moment, but let's uh, let each of our guests now take a moment to introduce themselves a little more extensively than I have done so thus far. Bruno Barron, I've identified him as a libertarian and a school choice advocate. What more can you tell us, uh, Bruno? Well, I've, I've been on the air for a long time with you, Bruce. I think it's a fantastic show. I enjoy every time I get a chance to be on. Thank you. And uh, basically, I'm a senior fellow on education issues with the Heartland Institute. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I work with a nonprofit where I uh, flip houses for Jesus. And by the way, you are a prodigious Facebook poster. And I want to say that for those people who uh, hear guests on this program, uh, Beyond the Beltway Fans, that's the name of the page, it's only for people who are guests on the program. But you hear a guest on the program, you may like what they have to say. So I have asked all those guests, when they post something, post it to uh, uh, you know, Beyond, the Beltway, uh, Beyond the Beltway Fans, and you can read what they have to say. So, uh, Bruno, all of your friends, send them over to Beyond the Beltway Fans. If you're listening and you like what Bruno has to say, uh, do that. And, by the way, we should mention before we get where well, he's going to introduce himself in just a moment, but the other great prodigious writer is uh, uh, Josh Cantro, and you, you can read everything that Josh has to say, and he has lots to say. Uh, you can find him on Beyond the Beltway Fans. And uh, we go back, uh, LaShawn Ford, take a moment and introduce yourself, and uh, we'll look forward to your posts that Beyond the Beltway fans as well. Thank you, Bruce. Yes, I'm from the west side of Chicago, and um, I'm a teacher by profession. I taught for about six years in the Chicago public schools. Then I left and started my own real estate firm, and then I moved into the General Assembly. I've been um, a Democrat in the House of Representatives now since 2007. And you ran for mayor against Lori Lightfoot. And to say, uh, as a political analyst, I would say that it was a very tepid campaign. There are some that are suggesting, LaShawn Ford, that you want to run again, that you still want to be mayor of Chicago. Is that true? I support Lori Lightfoot. Um, I think that she's um, doing a, a good job given the circumstances, okay. and I really support her as the mayor of the city of Chicago. That's good, That's uh, good to know. Josh Cantro, tell us, everybody uh, everybody uh, listening, a little bit more about yourself. Thank you, Bruce, for having me on again. I've been fortunate to have been a guest for, <laughs> on this show numerous times. Yep. And uh, it's a great show. Uh, I'm a Republican and pro-Israel activist. Uh, I'm a writer, commentator. Uh, I write a lot in American Thinker. And on my Facebook blog where I have uh, 
uh, hundreds of thousands of followers, not just on my page, but on various groups mm -hmm. where I write and where I'm active, including on your page, Bruce. And uh, I'm a, uh, I make my living by being a, a cybersecurity attorney, yeah. uh, counseling mid-sized and small business. And now you're, a now you're a conservative blogger. You're, you're getting to be a big uh, media mocker. <laughs> a mocker. Well, you're a mocker. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm a small potato. Uh, and you're, you've helped me, uh, grow. So I appreciate it. By the way, let me just mention on a personal note, because you and I are, are, are personal Facebook friends. I have greatly enjoyed the last couple of weeks because Josh has gone on uh, vacations with two of his sons, uh, adventures with two of his sons. He has sent a lot of pictures. And I will say that uh, in any person's life or young boy's life, uh, hopefully there is a memory of what they did with their dad when they were 12 to 15 years old. And you certainly have given your boys uh, something that they will never, ever forget, Josh. I admire you for that greatly. I, I appreciate it, Bruce. Uh, it's been great spending time with my boys, and we've been visiting national parks throughout this yep. great country. Very good. LaShawn Ford, I want to go back to you to answer the question that uh, uh, Bruno had uh, th th tossed up to you before the break, so uh, uh, head off with it. Yeah, Bruce, so it's really not about money. It's about investments, <laughs> and investments will always yield um, the best if you make the inve investments right. Mm -hmm. you, just an example, the west side of Chicago and the south side of Chicago still have the same vacant lots that were burned down after the King riot. Yep. That's a problem. That's yes, a problem that the city has not reinvested in those communities. <laughs> and most recently, the city of Chicago voted to give $7 billion to a single community to start a whole new neighborhood while leaving the Austin, Inglewood, Roseland community mm -hmm. with vacant lots. That's a problem. So I don't think the families in these communities want a handout or anything. All they want to do is make sure that the government does its part with the tax dollars so that they could build stronger communities. But back, back to a question that I asked before. That area that you referred to, and by the way, I know it well because I was in the Illinois National Guard. I saw that neighborhood burned down from the from the top floor of that armory following the death of Dr. Martin Luther King. And when I drive through it now, it, it's virtually the same empty space as it was. The, the you know the the burned out buildings are gone, but the empty buildings or the empty lots are still there. So you know it's it's fifty plus years later. And, and I come back to the question: Is there have been Democratic elected Cong members of Congress? There have been Democratic presidencies. Uh, they all have ignored what's happening or what happened on the West side. How do you, if, if you are from a neighborhood that votes 99% for the democratic party and you, and you have elected democratic presidents for, for 50 years, I mean, there've been some Republicans as well. How do you look around your neighborhood and see empty lots? I don't know how that, I don't know how that still exists. It's painful. But it's we painful. also know on the other side of the spectrum is a a party that thinks about stripping the voters' rights act out mm -hmm. of the um, hands of, of black people and making it harder for blacks to vote. That's a fact. You know, we know that we have to protect our interests. We know that the other side of the spectrum has a a law and order type of um, 
um, government and policies, you know. But you never, but, but you, you, you don't feel that way when you go to vote on the west side of Chicago. Are, are there blacks on the west side of Chicago that feel that there's that, that the Cook County uh, apparatus has has suppressed their vote? Have black votes been suppressed on the black and west side of Chicago uh, and south side of Chicago where they vote ninety percent for Democrats? There's oh, no voter, there's, there's not voter suppression there. No, I think that I think what you're leading to is why do um, blacks and and Democrats continue to vote for uh, Democrats? They should switch but, over and vote for Republicans. Well, Joe Biden. Joe Biden best. said that they vote monolithically. That's that's in essence when he got in tough uh, hot water last week. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not. I think that um, we have to do everything that we can because I do think that there would be blacks voting for Donald Trump this time more than. We expect why, and if we, um, you know, I just think that there is some thought of what you're saying, but we have to do our part as Democrats to prove differently and to step up our our um, our efforts to um, to lift up the black communities. If if that's if we want the votes, Otherwise, one, one last one last question to you. Then I want to move on to some other subjects. How important to you're a Democrat? How important is it to you? that Joe Biden pick a black woman running mate? And what difference, if at all, would it make to turn out in your neighborhood? Well, for me, I, I would just hope that Joe Biden picks the running mate that will win. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's always good to have a figure up there that looks like you, that could motivate your yep, right. base of people. But the key is, in this case, is that Joe Biden has the people that's in the back room counting the numbers and know who's going to get the base out. If it's a white woman, black woman, Asian woman, that's who we need to pick. Josh, who do you think the uh, candidate is going, Joe Biden is going to pick as a running mate to, uh, uh, to push him over the top in the fall? Is it going to be an African-American running mate? I, I believe it will be. I suspect it's going to be uh Kamala Harris uh, would be who I think it's going to be, and if not, Susan Rice. Right. That's that's my prediction. I, I do want to just jump in and, and and say something in response to what LaShawn said. I mean, when you look at how blacks vote, and I'm Jewish, and so it's a similar situation. Um, I see it among my, my people as well. Uh, they vote overwhelmingly Democratic, except for the Orthodox Jews. Uh, I just wonder, like, in Chicago, we've had Democratic mayors since 1932 and a fully Democratic-controlled city council and I just, and a lot of Democratic presidents. And you had Obama with the full Congress um, for two years and a supermajority in the Senate. And so why wasn't progress made then? And as a Republican, I'm very frustrated by the lack of outreach that the Republican Party has made to people of color. I think Trump has actually done, uh, when he was campaigning, a lot of things that other Republicans didn't do. And he did tackle the Clinton-era crime uh, bill to reform that. And he's done some good things for the African-American community. So, But I'd like to see more effort by the Republican Party as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, To go after the black and brown votes. 
Bruno, uh, 15 seconds to you. You got a comment on that? I, I think Josh is 100% right. I don't understand. I mean, I, I think LaShawn is making the case that you've got North Carolina and Alabama senators that are Republican that are blocking funding for black communities. You know, that might be the case in, in certain aspects of the Republican Party, but why doesn't somebody just promise to, why don't they just go into Austin and say, if you elect me, I will bring money in here and I will bring resources in here. And if you do your part, we'll do our part and we'll rebuild Austin because that's real estate waiting to be filled in by people who want to live there. Okay. And uh, LaShawn wants to sell the real estate. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <Back> <laughs> shortly. <laughs> Bruce, you're a businessman for real. You know everybody's business. (laughs) We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back from beautiful Evanston, Illinois. And uh, we've got Dexter Childs Randalls tuned in, Leanne Larson, Kenneth Bates, Tom Hagen, and uh, Paul, Paula or Pam Winston, and also uh, Rob Kirkland, a longtime favorite of this program. They are all tuning in tonight to listen to Beyond the Beltway. And uh, uh, I, the big story of the last 24 hours is that uh, the president decided that he was tired of waiting for Republicans and Democrats to try to get their act together on Congress. Uh, so he is coming out with an or came out with an executive order. Uh, and again, I want to get reaction from uh, Bruno. You're a you're a libertarian. Uh, this has been viewed by some people as a brilliant move by the president because he, he throws a lot of stuff out there. It sounds real good. Uh, it may not pass uh, constitutional muster, but at least for a couple of news cycles, it looks like he's trying to uh, help unemployed people get $400 in their pocket and as opposed to 600 is better than nothing. And uh, I want to get your reaction to uh, how he's using his executive powers at the moment. Well, you could, you know, anybody could argue this from any side. I mean, I'm, I've, as some of your listeners know, I've never been like a super Trump fan. No, I, know um, I didn't vote for him in 2016. Um, I don't think I'm going to vote for him in 2020, but I, he's clearly less of a danger than the alternative that I'm looking at right now in the Democratic Party. So I don't know what to do. Um, is he a brilliant tactician? Uh, I think he. I think he's done a lot better than anybody expected. So a lot of people who call him names and, and talk about how stupid or boorish he is, um, you know, are kind of missing something. I was surprised on Tuesday night, 2016, when he won. Um, so, it, you know, constitutionally, is this the right amount of money? I think a lot of this is much more having to do with theater than it is to do with the actual policy being an election year. Mm-hmm. So we'll just have to see how it breaks down. Josh Cantrell, what's your reaction? You're a conservative Republican. Uh, that deficit's going way, way up. Are you worried about it? 
Yeah, I'm worried about it, and I've uh, I've always been very concerned about the deficit, a fiscal conservative. Um, but you know, as I said on the show before, Bruce, this is not the time to um, to focus on that as much as getting people through this crisis. So I thought the move the president made was a brilliant political move, and I, I only see upside from it. If the courts turn him down, he can say I had these tried. If the Democrats cry and scream about it, they look miserly, whereas he's looking generous. Um, LaShawn, the, 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 the Democrats and the Speaker uh, and, and uh, Schumer in the Senate, uh, they both think this idea is a horrible idea, that it's unconstitutional, uh, and yet uh, they were not able to get the necessary votes to get their, uh, their plan put together. Uh, is the president going to pick up some support from uh, some people in, in, in your neck of the woods? Because uh, maybe if they are, are unemployed, they're going to get uh, $300 or $400, uh, not $600, but they're going to get something, whereas if the Democrats can't get anything done, they will have zip to, to show for it. You know, anytime you could do something that really um, impacts and affects a person's quality of life, it's going to mean something. And so... We, we have to wonder. I mean, if I was the president of the United States and and there was a stalemate, I probably would try to do something like that also. Mm-hmm. And also, it seems to me that the Democrats are being perceived as they're holding out for their three trillion dollar stimulus plan, uh, which has been explained to many people by Republicans as really a bailout of states around the United States, red and blue, that have been, uh, you know, they've, they've been improperly run for decades, and the Democrats are just trying to use this emergency to uh, uh, funnel money to, uh, to, state, uh, to state coffers. And, you, you know, you've got to deal with a state coffer in Illinois, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that the, the people are going to buy that message this year. Well, the states definitely need more money to deal with the um, budget uh deficits that we're facing Mm -hmm. and the federal government prints money. And so it's right for the Democrats to want to send more money to the states. That's why Congress people are elected to fight for money to come back to the states. Josh, the other big question is to what extent is the president going to go to the mat on, on mail-in balloting? Uh, What's your take on, on the wisdom of fighting that battle uh, for mail-in balloting? Do you think it's uh, potentially corrupting? I worry about mail-in balloting. I really do. I think that uh, what we just saw in New York with uh, close races and the kind of fiasco there mm-hmm. uh, with the mail-in ballots coming in three <clears throat> weeks late uh, raises real concern. But I think the president's got to pick which side he's on on this because in some states he seems to be in favor of it and in other states he's not. He's got to pick a side and stick with it. Otherwise, it looks hypocritical. Well, the side that he's on is an is absentee ballots, and it, I mean, it seems to me the media has not done a good job in in delineating uh, the two forms. I mean, if 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 you are an absentee ballot uh, or a voter, you have to send in a be affirmative, ask for a, a ballot. You then have to you know make sure that you vote and and get it back. But there's action that is required by you. Uh, the difference that some Democrats want is they just want ballots to be sent out uh, to, uh, to to voters, some of whom may be dead, and uh, there doesn't seem to be the uh, the affirmative action by by anyone uh, 
to to ask for the ballot, and that could be corrupting. I mean, uh, you know, the president has said that foreign uh, nationals could be uh, counterfeiting uh, ballots and sending them out, and it would confuse people on the on, on the back end. I need a quick response from uh, from both our other guests on that subject. Are, are you worried about the the security of a of a mail in ballot, Lashawn? No, we. I help write and um, negotiate our um, process here for mail-in, and you have to apply for an application, not a ballot in Illinois. Even and for a so, mail, even for mail-in. Yes, you have to apply for it. You have to get an application and apply. You don't just get a ballot. Okay, well that's good. In California, they're just they're just sending out the ballots. Quick question: I got ten seconds for you, uh, Bruno. What's your response? Every single fraudulent vote should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, and every single legal vote should be driven to the polling place and made possible to vote. Okay, good point. On that note, we are out of time for this evening. Our thanks to Andy Miles for assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. 
helping out when things go wrong, seeking the truth and speaking our minds, not just making records, but breaking them, leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen, not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.